Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Tim. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. It is a it is it's, it's here a, a dreary uh, April day. We're going to be broadcasting this in May, uh, so I'm hopefully per, perhaps we'll be broadcasting this right before I head out to the a local ball game or something. I don't know about you, but I'm really eager to get into the spring. Um, but uh, you and I, I don't think we've ever been in the same room together. Uh, I know some of your people uh, had had some of your folks here on the podcast before, and so uh, when your folks reached out and said let's have a conversation, I was very enthusiastic. I'm delighted to have you here, Tim. Uh, before we dive into our conversation, how about you just tell our listeners who you are? 
Well, sure. Well, Jason, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Tim Kaczuriak, and I'm the founder and chief innovation and optimization officer for Next After, which sounds like a mouthful, and it in fact is. But when you start your own company, you can call yourself whatever it is you want to call yourself. And the two things I'm most passionate about is innovation and optimization. So I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point today, Jason. So, Tim, I, I, I have to ask you, somebody who says in their introduction, you know, started his own company, you know, one of the things I have figured out, I've been working, I've been on sort of a, it's almost like a spiritual journey for me, because I, I knew that I had more to offer the sector other than working at a local nonprofit. But I also sort of have these qualms with the traditional consulting role, too. And perhaps a little bit like you're unlike yourself, I'm not really a tech guy. So trying to figure out what the hell my company was supposed to look like and what the role that I was supposed to play has been quite a journey. Um, is that is, is there any similarities in your journey that uh, that might sound familiar? Uh, there's, there's too many similarities for us to get into in just a 30 minute conversation. Uh, but I, I would argue that I had worked on both sides of the table as well. So I worked at a nonprofit organization. I've worked at agencies and I think that there's a lot of things broken with the traditional yeah. consultancy agency business model. But the two things I did know that I loved is like innovation, which means developing new solutions to challenges that we face in our space and optimization means making the existing solutions work even better. So that's why I've kind of settled into that as my role. Yeah, well, I'm kind of excited. Uh, a lot of people know that I, I finally found a business partner who uh, who is taking care of all of the weaknesses, weaknesses that I have. And, uh, and we're starting to figure our stuff out here on the sort of the other side of this pandemic. Um, Tim, we ask our guests to come with a big idea, bold opinion. We don't necessarily know where the conversation is going to go. I have a little bit of a sense what we're going to talk about today. Um, and uh, th that's sort of how we keep the conversation going. So uh, what do you got for us today? <laughs> well, I think uh, what caught your attention is something that I often say. Um, and uh, people think I'm joking, but I'm actually um, dead serious. I am not a fundraising expert. Yeah. And neither are you. Yeah, I the like that. The only fundraising experts are the donors themselves. And so we must learn to become students of the donors by observing their behavior so that we can evolve our understanding of who they are, what they care about, and how we can inspire them to be even more generous. So there's like two different directions we could go there. Uh, one of the things is like at Responsive, we call ourselves a professional learning community because I really kind of like similar to my own experiences over at the college where I teach. Um, but uh, but there's also a deep appreciation for sort of the, the messy ambiguity and uncertainty that sort of comes with the nature of building relationships. So, and, you know, you know, there's nothing to learn. There's only so much you can learn ahead of time. Right. You almost like have to be in front of the donor. Um, so. So when you say that, then we're not ex, and, and then I guess the other thing, there's even another caveat to that. Uh, so, and you got to take this conversation where you want to, but there's also sort of that early 20th century sort of Frederick Taylor definition of expertise <laughs> that is really what gets me stirred up. So, uh, so which direction do you want to go? I, I, I want to be, um, well, I mean, let's, let's just go ahead and spin the wheel. So go ahead and take me where you want to go. Yes, yes. So what what does that mean when you say so if if the role if if we're not the experts or there or, or there's no such thing as a fundraising expert in the traditional definition that say you and I and our peers might describe it um what are we? What is our role? A guy like you, a guy like me and guys and gals who do the work that we do, what is the role that we're supposed to be playing? 
So I think our, our, our role is that of a Sherpa, right? So we are to help our yeah. clients uh, along the journey towards greater discovery and greater achievement. And that comes by not really trying to put ourselves in this position of like, trust me, I'm a doctor. I think that we have too much of that in the space. It's like, you know, guru city in the nonprofit space. <laughs> and if I've done this long enough and I've got a gray enough beard, then all of a sudden, like everybody should just like sit back and listen to me and never question anything I say. And I find that a lot of these long held best practices that we've had are simply not true anymore. I mean, the yeah. world is constantly changing. So like, if you say, look, you know, I have found this thing and it's the universal truth and it's always going to work and it's always going to work, but the world's constantly changing underneath our feet, then I think that that's a false premise and it leads us down uh, a pathway that leads towards, honestly, either stagnation or even worse. Yeah, so I've been spending a lot of time the last couple of years getting to know Frederick Taylor. This is the guy at the beginning of the the first management consultant, right? This is early 20th century, right after the Industrial Revolution. And he was an he was an efficiency expert. And I think I think that's part of the part of the challenge, especially in the nonprofit sector, because there's not much that we can do that actually gets the job done that isn't isn't in some ways supposed to be inefficient. Like a lot of the problems that we're supposed to solve in our, in our sector are the inefficient things, the things you can't, you know, design a machine and you can't sell at Walmart or target. Um, and, and so the, the, the efficiency expert certainly isn't what we need. Um, but I think also, you know, going to back to the Taylor, uh, example, he, he was designing machines and we're talking about human beings, right? Right. And I think this is why the internet has opened up the greatest opportunity in the world for us to learn from our donors, right? So like, if you think about it, uh, the web is perhaps the greatest behavioral laboratory that's ever existed. Because in the past, we could ask people what they think and we could pull them, we can ask them questions, all this stuff. But we know that what people do often doesn't match what they say they would do, right? And so when, when I say that the web is the laboratory, that's how we use it today. So at Next After, we have this fundraising lab, and we've documented over 3,300 different fundraising experiments across a whole range of different organizations. And we're testing different things. Sometimes we're testing macro things like value proposition and messaging. Sometimes we're testing micro things like, you know, the order of the gift array or whether there is one at all on a donation page. And we're allowing the behavior of our donors that are in these controlled experiments that they don't know that they're participating in to guide us towards what works and what doesn't based on their actual behavior. And that's what I think is really the key to success in today's world. Okay. So I love that. And I think I've seen that because I think I've seen some of your promotional efforts going on on social media and so forth, but I don't know that it sort of clicked until you just said that the idea that perhaps your firm, Tim, I, how does, here's a guy who, again, trying to figure out sort of my own, you know, the, the proposals that we're putting in front of clients. How do you, and somebody who describes our, our consulting team as a, as a professional learning community, similar to a faculty. How do you sell a client, for example, on the idea that we're going to do experiments? I mean, you know, a lot of fundraising, just like marketing has always been about this idea of testing and stuff. But, but it sounds like there's a, you're actually pushing that envelope a little further. And when you refer right. to yourself as a lab, there's a little more than just A, B testing going on, I hope. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we do uh, primary research as well, where we actually have given over a million dollars over the last 10 years to thousands of nonprofit organizations in, at 
$20 at a time. So like, you know, we do all these mystery donor studies to try to really develop empathy for what the donors experience on a regular basis. And when you do that, like with a hundred organization, four times a year, you develop yeah. a ton of empathy and you see a lot right. of things that are crazy, like making the donor have to pick one of 800 different gift designations for where they're going to direct their gift at a certain college or university, which will go unnamed, but it's probably one of the largest college and universities on the planet. How can any human make that decision? They can't. And so they decide, you know what, I'll come back to this later. And we know that later never, ever, ever happens. So, so that's, the, that's the kind of the things that we use to kind of give us some ideas and some hypotheses. But let me just give you a real practical example. This is a test that we performed dozens of times. We've done it in different countries and different languages. Yeah. So first of all, let me just set the preface that like the majority of nonprofit organizations that are raising money online, the number one channel that they're raising money in is email fundraising, right? Sure. Email yeah. is a true direct response channel, right? Just it operates okay. very similar to direct mail, which most nonprofits are familiar with. Yeah. If you look at most nonprofit fundraising emails, they're highly designed, lots of HTML and graphics and images and buttons. And there's sometimes multiple calls to action in the copy. And if you read the copy, it sounds like it's written from a professional copywriter because it usually, in fact, is, especially if it's a very large, not, you know, national or an international nonprofit organization. Right. The problem with that approach, which everyone does, by the way, because it's the best practice. Right. Everyone says it's got to look pretty and they're designing things for themselves, not for the donor. They the reason why that's a broken approach is because when a potential donor sees that in their inbox, all they see is somebody trying to market to them. And what we know is that people don't want to be marketed to. They want to be communicated with people don't give to email machines. They give to people. And so the, the treatment that we've designed is. A, a stripped down version. We get rid, of, get rid of the images, get rid of the graphics, get rid of the buttons. We rewrite the copy. So it's a plain text email that looks like it comes from uh, a friend, right? So it's like a, an email that one human would send to another human, 200, 300, 400, 500% increase in donation conversion, taking that approach. And that is a very kind of upside down type of perspective that we might have if we just use our marketing intuition. And that's the kind of stuff that gets people to say, oh my gosh, Maybe I've been doing this wrong all along. And once you get somebody to just make that one slight move, then they're open to a new alternative, right? They're open to a new paradigm that we then present, uh, you know, to our clients. Okay. So that, that, that notion that we have to have everything sort of, um, one of my previous guests, we talked about the idea of a lot of us sort of came from and were sort of reared in the, um, the broadcast era and it's not the broadcasting era anymore. We're not, you know, and so the, 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 the idea that everything's got to be pretty and perfect and warm and fuzzy and that sort of stuff. But there, but there's something that you might be able to help me with. that sort of maybe translates really well. So one of the things that I've noticed on my own activity on LinkedIn, so a lot of people hear my, my rants and my raves and all the comments that I have to sort of put out into the world. Sometimes the best stuff, Tim, that I put out there is literally completely done on the impulse, which means it's not highly edited. It's, you know, my wife helps me clean it up perhaps at the most, but it's just like put out there into the world. I haven't tested it. And usually it's the stuff that gets the most significant response. I mean, is that the sort of testing and is that sort of some of the impulse that you're trying to experiment with and teach your clients is the idea that they actually have to sort of in some cases, just put really bold, impulsive messages out there and and see what sticks. Yeah. I mean, again, so humanizing our communication is one of the most effective ways to improving results, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes we let our vernacular or our yeah. marketing intuition get in the way of our humanity. 
And yeah. that is like a tragic, tragic mistake. Uh, and I think that in some way we've been ingrained, like since the fifties and the days of like the, you know, the admin, the madmen guys, like Mad where they're, yes, yes. you know, basically just trying to focus on constantly persuading an audience. I feel like yeah. we've, we've almost like evolved where we have this like built in bullshit, you know, indicator that's constantly yeah. running in the background and we can sniff that stuff out in, in seconds. And when we can, then all of a sudden the message, it doesn't matter what I'm saying. It's not going to get through. So sometimes just kind of moving away from that and, and just like, you know, really trying to take the approach of just being a real person, kind of like your LinkedIn post. When you're just being real, you're not trying yeah. to be persuasive or cutesy or, you know, super, super avant-garde. You're just being yourself. That's the stuff that's very endearing. Okay. So if can you, again, I only have my head wrapped around so much, primarily given the benefit of. 15 minutes worth of conversations thus far. But Tim, one of the things that I'm, I'm constantly sort of pressing the, the nonprofit community, people in roles like yours, helping other nonprofits figure out their fundraising efforts. Is, is there anything that you all are experimenting with between the, one of the messages I put in my first book was this idea between the initial and the subsequent gift. It was the idea that once you got on the other side of the initial gift, that the relationship fundamentally had changed from something like a consumer to something more akin to like a citizen. And this is, this is the sort of the underlying theory that I'm developing in the forthcoming book. Is there anything in sort of your labs, your experiments that sort of give validity to that? And I guess what I'm also getting at is, is it seems to be that that, 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 that point between the initial and the subsequent gift, again, no regard for the size of the gift at all. I don't care which one was bigger, which was smaller for what it was given to, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems to me like we've got to begin to, in order to get renewal rates up, understand that something has fundamentally changed. Is there, is there validity to that in, yeah. in your mind? For sure. I mean, like, look, re retention is, you know, or I, I should probably use the inverse. Attrition is yeah. an epidemic in our space, yes, right? So, sure. And the reason right. why is because we're so freaking addicted to this direct response mindset, right? We're just yeah. doing whatever we can get to get the $1 I put in, turn into $5 that comes back out the other side. We don't think in terms of long-term relationship building with our supporters. So there's uh, a group based in the UK, the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, uh, uh -huh. Dr. Adrian Sargent, Dr. Jen Shang. This is the focus of their research. They say, look, we're doing fundraising wrong. We're doing fundraising in a way that leaves the donor in a worse state of well-being. And yeah. there's alternatives that we could do that may generate less money today, but it's going to create a more sustainable partnership with this supporter that will lead to, you know, much higher dividends if we, if we take that approach. The problem is, is getting nonprofit organizations to be disciplined enough of like saying, look, you mean I can reduce my results today? Uh, thanks. Who else you got? What else you got? You know, so that's, that's the challenge. That's the rub. Yeah, I, I guess the other thing, are you following this? Um, one, of, one of the things I'm kind of fascinated with lately, Tim, and maybe you guys are talking about this as well, is this idea that all of the, the, like what the pandemic sort of taught us, um, was that this opportunity for what, what one academic group calls perceived proximity. Like we've had all these platforms available to us. And, and, and it was only during the pandemic that we realized that like you and I can sit here. I literally have a cup of coffee in my hand and have a coffee table Starbucks type conversation that has most of the efficiency built into it that we've been looking for a long time, but we're actually having a conversation. Are you guys working? Is that the type of stuff you're talking about as well? 
Uh, yes, it's, I mean, uh, look, I, it's not the same though. I mean, like if you and I were sitting down and having a cup of coffee or beer together, like it would be a completely <laughs> different dynamic than just like talking on the little squares. Yeah. However, that aside, you know, what the pandemic gave us, which was a tremendous gift is a violent shove into, into digital transformation, right? Yeah. It was something yeah. we didn't want, but all of a sudden this became our only lifeline. And I think that that just really opened up the eyes of everybody of saying that, look, I don't have to maybe get on that plane, right? Which is basically a more eco-friendly choice, by the way, anyway, right? Like yes, I don't yes. have to go and, you know, be with that person in person. I could probably do this. It's, it's kind of like the old days of saying like, does this have to be a meeting or could it be an email? It's like, does it have to be a face-to-face visit or could it be a Zoom meeting? Like that's kind of like the mind shift that I've seen change. So, so what is it? that a group like yours doing experiments like you're talking about, what is it? What was sort of that hard, fast, top of the list sort of observation that you all realized in the midst of this pandemic stuff? Well, I think the, the, the biggest thing is that people didn't stop giving. So, you know, when, when everything kind of started to shut down, like in the middle of March, um, I looked to our CTO and I said, Hey, Kevin, We've been doing all these mystery donor studies for all these years. We have all this data that's pouring into this aggregate donor inbox that we maintain with like thousands of nonprofits communication. I'm getting questions every single day from our clients saying, number one, should I still be communicating with my donors? Number two, are people still giving? We have answers to those two questions. And so we created this series of data visualizations and we're able to answer a lot of those questions. What we found is actually email communication went up significantly right after March 15th. And actually giving every month, month, uh, year over year for the rest of the year, like it was higher than the previous level. So like people were getting more communication. They were giving more gifts. And, you know, we saw that 2020 was the first year ever based on the Blackbaud, um, you know, study that they put out on charitable giving. It was the first year that digital revenues surpassed 10% of total giving. In fact, it was 13% in 2020. So that was a huge kind of like just win for the digital marketers of the group. Yeah. One of the things I think I most appreciated hearing. So uh, we had the um, we had Steve in it at Bloomerang on here right in the middle of the pandemic. And one of the things that he was talking about, maybe you guys saw data points like this as well. It was the idea that they were tracking more telephone calls than they had. They had. There was some spike, some statistic. And he said, you know, telephone calls going both ways, like donors are calling fundraisers back. And, and I thought, you know, on the, on the other side of this, you know, so here we are, you know, thinking that we're sort of coming out of the the tunnel here on this pandemic, have, have some of us as fundraisers finally learned that the donor will call you back when they want to have a conversation. And then in some cases they'll have very meaningful conversations and that obviously it'll, it'll translate into these much more meaningful levels of support. I mean, are you guys seeing that sort of a, um, that sort of dialogue, yeah. you know, actually sure. happening. And are yeah. we going to, is a guy like you and a team like yours, and I just had this conversation with somebody else on here where I asked the exact same question. Are we talking about a fundamentally different different fundraiser who's actually going to learn how to talk to the donor rather than broadcasting messages, going back to that pretty email thing? Like, yeah. like we're actually going to learn how to talk to these people. Well, that, that's a, um, that's an output of taking that more plain email type of approach is that you're going to see a tremendous greater number of replies. And I would say that yeah, replies like that. Yeah. are probably the most underrelated email metric that is measured today. 
Because when somebody replies to you, that means that there's this implied relationship between the two of you. They believe that you're a human, like, and they want to engage in a conversation, which is much more valuable than just a blast, right? I mean, like, look at the words that we use to describe communication. I'm going to go blast you. Who wants to be blasted? Not me, but communicated with? Absolutely. And so now we're trying to figure out, okay, um, if I'm dealing with an organization that has like hundreds of thousands or even millions of email addresses and we take this approach, how can I scale up our ability to then respond to those donors? Because the goal maybe is not necessarily just to get a quick win and get a go a donation, but it's to build a relationship with that individual donor so that we can, you know, maybe inspire them to higher levels of giving. So that that's the that's one of the shifts that we're seeing where it's requiring more human resources, not less. Uh, I'll be Tim, I'll, and I'll make sure to give you credit for that. That's exactly what I'm talking. I'll be at a roadshow here in the next couple of months, and I'll be talking about the difference between this initial and this subsequent gift. And it's the idea that you're talking about. Just how do you design an email that deliberately designs that it's designed in such a way where you want to reply to it? And if you think about it, all of us have gotten those emails that were designed with all that fa- fancy HTML that you were talking about that you know by the nature of the way that they were designed that by replying to them, they're not going to go anywhere. Right. Right. And so how do we design these things to, um, I'll I'll make it real simple. I'll give your audience a very simple tactic they can do. Yeah. Ask a bloody question, right? Ask a question. If you want the, the donor to respond to you, ask them a question. Here's what we do. We send emails that just talk about ourselves the whole time. We brag and we talk about this and look at our accomplishments here and follow us on this and like us on that. Yeah. What if we just ask them a question? I mean, like if the, the normal rules of like engagement, when you're building relationships with humans, like, you know, if you and I are going to be buddies, right? Yeah. If I go and just sit there and give you my resume the whole time, you're going to be like, dude, get away from me. Right. But if I ask <laughs> you questions and I ask you to tell me more and explain more, like if I'm interested then yeah. I don't have to try to be interesting all the time. Does that make sense? It makes total. So tell me what that question is. Cause it can't be, it, it, I'm guessing it has to be a question that you don't already know the answer to. Right. I mean, if, if it's, if it's a genuine question, what's the question? I mean, it could be any sort of question. Um, you know, like, why did you give to us? Like, Hey, okay, we, yeah. we're going through our old records and I know this you gave us a gift on, you know, insert blank and black date, insert yes. blank and blank amount. Yes. What prompted that gift? Why did you do that? And they might be like, huh, I don't even remember doing that. You know, like <laughs> that, that could be like a, that's one answer, right? So that might mean that you haven't done anything to connect the dots between their initial point of inspiration when they gave that gift to the impact that that gift would have. And that probably means that donor is going to lapse if you don't do anything about that, right? So you see, see what I mean? Like you can learn so much by asking really meaningful questions of your donors. But there's also a deliberateness and there's a commitment. I'm guessing <laughs> you're, you can't be the 100%. There's got to be yeah. a commitment on your part to reply to that reply. That's so right. if you send out 500 emails like that and you get 55 responses, you're also committing something. And I, I think that's what frustrates me sometimes too, going back to this idea between the initial and the subsequent. We're not going through the process of deliberately thinking, okay, you, you know, average, average ABC charity on giving Tuesday is going to get, you know, 400 new gifts. They, they, they spend all this time and energy building up to giving Tuesday, but they don't think about, okay, how are you going to respond to this sort of this ongoing dialogue? Yep. Um, you know, are you going to make sure that you have the, yep. the manpower? That's right. Well, I remember like when we first started kind of taking this approach and testing this and we were working with an organization and the executive director was the, was the signer of the emails. 
And he said, yeah. hey, I want you to know you've created a big problem for me. We said, oh, yeah? What's that? He's like, I've got all these donors replying to these emails, and I'm now having to have conversations with them. We're like, right. well, uh, sorry, not sorry. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, actually, I'm, I'm loving it. Like, yeah. that's my job is to talk to donors. And like, now you've created an opportunity for me to do that. It's like, I've set up a couple meetings with these folks that I've been trying to get meetings with forever. But now because of this mass email you sent that came from me, that sounded like a, you know, a, a, a one-to-one conversation has now opened the door for me to go have that opportunity to, to meet with that donor. So yeah, you get what you, you get what you asked for. Yeah, Tim, uh, this is fascinating. I think you and I could have a lot of fun, but we're we're in the last five minutes, and I don't like to try to hold on to our listeners more than about a half hour. But Tim, one of the questions I always like to ask a guy like you working with an organization like you are, who is that person that you want to hear from? And then if they reach out to you, what do you, you know, or, or assuming they're going to reach out to you, which they oftentimes do, um, how do they find you? I'm looking for curious fundraisers, people that have an insatiable intellectual curiosity and want to challenge the status quo. And if you are that person, go to nextafter.com and get in contact with me. Uh, and let's start having a conversation. Ask me a question. I will respond to your question. So you can go do yeah. that at nextafter.com. Yeah, this has been this has been really fun, and you've sort of provoked my thinking, and I appreciate your validating my uh, initial and subsequent subsequent gift theory, because uh, it's something I've been working on for quite some time. Tim, you're always welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.